0: Hello and welcome. Uh, My name is Dr. Raj Pasoor. I'm a consultant psychiatrist based in private practice in central London, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Guy Harvey and Ali Zhang. And we're going to be discussing sustainable prescribing or low carbon prescribing. So I'm going to ask Guy, first of all, to introduce himself and then Ali to introduce herself. Guy, can you introduce yourself, please, for us?
1: Hello, um, I'm Guy Harvey. I'm a consultant psychiatrist uh, at the moment, in um, Cumbria, Northumberland, Tyne and Weir NHS Trust in the north of England, and I'm also a uh, Trust clinical lead for sustainable healthcare. And Ali, can you uh, introduce yourself?
2: Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Ali Shang. I'm a specialty registrar in general adult psychiatry and medical psychotherapy, currently in West London NHS Trust. I'm also one of the college's sustainability scholar for the the year. And both of us are on the Planetary Health and Sustainability Committee at the college. So, Guy, let me
1: come to you first of all. Why do we need sustainable prescribing? Well, I think it's a very urgent situation. Um, I think a lot of people know about the uh, climate crisis that we're facing. And um, it's worth putting this situation into a bit of context. Um, we recently had COP26 in November last year. And um, from that, and a lot of efforts gone into reducing the carbon emissions globally, um, but, it, but it's still a lot to do. So COP26 has left us with a situation whereby if all the promises that um, countries are making with their net zero uh, commitments, if they're all kept, then we're still headed for a mean temperature rise of one point eight degrees C globally, which, which um, is well above the one point five degrees, which is thought to be uh, uh, to to avoid the the most serious effects. So there's still a lot more we can do, and we have to do. And I think um, uh, the, the 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 healthcare service uh, in the UK uh, is responsible for between four and five percent of the uh, carbon emissions of the whole country Um, so there's a lot to do in the healthcare sector and of that uh, of those emissions 25 percent are from medicines and chemicals so I think doctors in their role that you know they're the ones that prescribe medicines and use them and and so we have to think about as doctors how we can make the best use of the, the medicines we have um, and, 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 at the same time, try and reduce the carbon footprint that's associated with them.
0: Is the carbon footprint of medicines the only environmental problem?
1: No, it isn't. I mean, when we looked at this, we looked at the life cycle of, 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 of a drug. So, obviously, when it's you know, through research, uh, production, distribution, prescription, and then um, disposal, and, th- and f- throughout that cycle there's, there, there's a lot of um, pollution unfortunately um, th- these medicines are they're, they're designed to act on biological systems at very low doses and uh, and, and the, the excretion products often get into the water systems and they do affect um, the the behavior and uh, of, of wildlife but I think you know, regarding their carbon f- footprint, a lot of it comes in their manufacture, and um, the pharmaceutical uh, industry are aware of this and are doing quite a lot themselves to to reduce the, that uh, those, those emissions. So I think one of the things we can do is try and encourage our pharmaceutical colleagues to to, to get on with that as quickly as we can. Uh, and, uh, but but as as, as doctors we can think about how we can m- maybe prescribe less of these medicines. What's the NHS doing about the carbon footprint of medicines? Well, uh, the, the NHS has a commitment to become net zero by 2045 um, with regard to the supplies that they, they get. And, um, and so and the Greener NHS have set up a work stream which will be looking at how to ensure that the the products that the NHS uses, which contains a lot of carbon, how they can be made net zero as well. So this involves um, engaging with suppliers and that includes pharmaceutical companies to uh, work with them to help set targets and and, uh, timescales for their carbon reduction as well. So the NHS is doing Um, quite a lot at that level to um, encourage and work with the pharmaceutical industry to reduce the the carbon footprint. Although that's a long term uh, project and uh, uh, so we're talking about decades in that regard, but there's a lot we can do much more quickly, I think, to reduce the, the carbon footprint through the way we prescribe them what, how we uh, talk with patients about them, whether, you know, how we, um, how we can make the best use of these valuable resources. Could you say a bit more about the specific things you think uh,
0: doctors can do?
1: Well, um, the, the, I think the first thing to say is that the main, uh, um, the main consideration should be what is best for the patients in front of us. So that should be above any, any uh, considerations of sustainability or, 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 or such like that. So that's the main point to make. Um, there are some easy things that doctors can do, and that's um, you know, try and tackle waste, um, uh, try and encourage patients to dispose of their medicines um, appropriately. Um, but there are some more hard things as well, which is about the evidence that we have for the treatments we use, um, which which uh, there's a lot of some can be sometimes you know quite difficult to agree on which are the the, the most appropriate medicines for any particular situation. Um, I think we have to follow the principles of sustainable healthcare, and those are um, prevention first of all. So if you can prevent people becoming unwell, or, or, or once unwell prevent them becoming worse then then that's a sustainable intervention. The second principle is to encourage patients to self-care so how they can look after themselves using their communities and families and the third is about using the high value interventions and this is relevant to medicines so we have luckily we have NICE in the UK which has been working for years to identify which interventions are the highest values so we should be looking towards using NICE approved treatments and then there's the fourth principle which is low-carbon alternatives now we don't know a lot about this at the moment we obviously know that some, uh, some types of interventions particularly in psychiatry uh, you know don't involve medicines at all so talking therapy green and blue therapy um, and social prescribing are all interventions that are likely to have a lower carbon footprint. So I think that's one thing to consider. The second thing that doctors can do is work with their pharmacists because pharmacists uh, have, have um, been very interested in reducing um, polypharmacy or overprescribing for a number of years. Um, and they can be very valuable colleagues to help you decide which treatments are appropriate for patients, which ones are interacting with others, uh, which ones are no longer necessary. Um, and the pharmacists have procedures such as medicines optimization and re- reconciliation. Um, they have structured medication reviews where they can sit with a patient and identify which ones uh, are most important and which medicines can be stopped. And the third thing I think is that we need to work with patients in a partnership um, because about half of all prescriptions uh, are not taken as as prescribed uh, so there's a lot of waste and any clinician knows that um, their patients often have cupboards full of medicines that are not used uh, or patients are prescribed something and don't take it as as advised and 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 if you can reduce that by working with patients on a on a shared care basis a shared decision making so providing Evidence of the benefits and harms at the beginning, and identifying what the patient wants, what they will take, then I think you can achieve uh, you can achieve the good results um, w- without generating wasted farm ph- pharmaceuticals. And I think we're lucky because sustainable prescribing is also good prescribing. It's about you know getting uh, the right treatment to the right person at the right time.
0: Could you give us any other examples of sustainable prescribing?
1: Well, um, I've already mentioned about uh, de-prescribing. Um, th- there's also, uh, you know, using patients' preferences re- with regard to what they want to take, um, improving concordance, so helping patients, uh, reminding them that the appropriate medicines need to be taken. And I suppose um, what, one of the interesting examples is we know that. You know, If people deteriorate in psychiatry and they need admission to hospital, this is one of the most carbon intensive interventions we have. So we have services in psychiatry. We have crisis teams, we have home-based treatment teams. So sometimes the judicious use of a a small amount of of, of the right medication at the right time can prevent a crisis and then prevent people needing to come into hospital. and all of the consequences that that has for them and their families and the service, sometimes admissions you know, for several weeks and months. So, so sometimes you know, prescribing something at the right time uh, you know, can, can have this effect and, and all clinicians I think know this. Um, it's about getting the right patients, uh, the right treatments of the right patients at the right time, as I said before.
0: Thank you very much for that. So, Ali, let me come to you. Um, wh- why is medicines optimization and deprescribing so important for the sustainability agenda?
2: Well, as uh, Dr. Harvey has mentioned, it's, it does form a huge part of the NHS carbon footprint. And particularly if we add in sort of medicines, medical equipment and the other sort of supply chains, um, one finds that it's actually over 50% of the NHS emissions, So it seems really ideal to try and tackle this, as Dr. Harvey has mentioned, at all levels to make a difference and reach the aim um, that the NHS is is wanting of net zero by 2040.
0: So what are the challenges in optimising and deprescribing with patients in your experience?
2: There's plenty, as um, Dr. Harvey's mentioned already. I mean, um, I'd like to, I guess, give my experience as a trainee um, clinically on the front line that um, particularly since taking up the scholar role, I I feel like I, I want it to be at the forefront of my practice, though I've also seen how difficult it can be to implement this with patients who've been on psychotropic medications for a very long time. Um, In the last two years, firstly, I have worked um, in an acute inpatient setting during the COVID pandemic, where I actually have seen, you know, biological treatments, sometimes widely, is necessarily used for patients when they are acutely psychotic and very unwell. But we we heavily rely on these medications in, in severely unwell patients to keep them and staff safe. And I, I have seen uh, in some ways, I guess, duplication and waste of these medications when they might be included in discharge uh, medications, but um, may not necessarily be taken afterwards and or, and, or the GP will duplicate such um, medications. So there needs to be a, a more streamlined communication between services um, at the point of discharge as one particular way to try and reduce the waste and duplication of medications. Um, In the the last year, I've also worked in outpatient settings with with quite a a heavy caseload of around 180 patients. And what I've seen is that uh, many of my patients um, who've been in in, in psychiatric services for years are on numerous psychotropic medications. Yet, often when I ask them, they mention that these medications no longer really have any effect, but many are reluctant to reduce, uh, worried about perhaps relapse, but also worried about withdrawal effects. So we have, my experience I've seen is numerous patients on um, a whole load of, you know, sort of antidepressant, antipsychotic mood stabilizers, sedative medication, but not really actually helping them at this point, yet they are terribly afraid of trying to reduce even one of them. Um, and I think our, our appointment system doesn't quite allow the amount of demand and monitoring that it requires to be able to uh, withdraw from one medication safely. Um, I mean, as Dr. Harvey has said, you know, good prescribing practice is sustainable prescribing in a way that, you know, we need to aim for the lowest effective dose, stop unnecessary prescribing of the medication in collaboration with the patient. But this is more the ideal and it is, as as many things are, much more difficult in practice.
0: Uh, what about withdrawal effects? Is that really a factor?
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, um, a, a colleague, um of mine, a clinical research fellow, Dr. Mark Horowitz, is sort of leading the way on um, drawing attention to um, withdrawal effects and how how severe and long-lasting they can be. Um, And and as I've said already, it just, it doesn't feel like as if it's clinically indicated to continue uh, medications when it's really down to the difficult tapering off the medication rather than necessarily the medication being Indicated or beneficial at a later stage for the for the patient. So as I've mentioned, Dr. Horowitz has written um, a recent um, article in the BJ Psych Advances highlighting, highlighting that about a third of patients may suffer from withdrawal effects. And, and, and thankfully, you know, the college and many others are, are starting to recognize. Um, this effect and difficulty of coming off medication, and there are published guidance on stopping antidepressants on the website. And also, um, there is now further guidance provided in the latest edition of the Morsley Prescribing Guidelines in Psychiatry on Stopping Antipsychotics, Lithium, Mood Stabilisers, and Benzodiazepines, and as as uh, I mentioned, Dr. Horace is also writing the morsley Deprescribing prescribing guidelines. So I think I, th- I think both these um, books will really i think really help clinicians uh, working with patients in in clinic and on the wards.
0: And how can change in your opinion be affected at the individual level?
2: um well as as I mentioned as this, as a scholar as as one of the sustainability scholars, I'm one of um, the the areas I feel I, I I could help to work on is trying to raise awareness at the local at my local service level because I find actually um, throughout medical school and junior doctor trainings I I can't recall really ever being taught about sustainable prescribing um, or sustainable sustainable clinical practice generally I think it's become much more in our consciousness, perhaps since COVID has has struck us and and all the natural disasters that have increased in recent years. Um, So I've been trying to raise awareness of this in clinical improvement group meetings, academic program discussions. And um, I I think it feels like it's been welcomed in a way to to have the space and time to think about this area that's, often quite neglected and um, many clinicians I I think are quite ignorant ignorant about Um, and the hope is I guess this would spark individual clinicians to to work on their own quality improvement projects. Um, I've been trying to work with um, pharmacy colleagues to try and design patient information leaflets for example in terms of sedative medications, education about that, and and how we can try and reduce that as a first step. Um, But I I am, it's heartening to see that, as Dr. Harvey has mentioned already, there are um, multidisciplinary members already offering other types of um, low carbon prescribing, you know, and also social prescribing. So we've got peer support workers, link workers, art therapists, walking groups, occupational therapy, um, and it's a delight to see that there are other treatments possible within um, our services for patients. Um, and, and, I, I, and going back to sort of the one-to-one clinical encounters, I think um, there are possibilities with the patient to try and introduce areas that might, might affect them, including the climate. And ecological emergency and um, our college has devised this nature based history taking to work on sort of. um, One's history, one's feelings, one's lifestyles and one's sort of how to become more embodied and um, more in touch, I guess, with nature that. um, I found clinically it's actually been quite difficult to bring that into the room with the patient, but if there is. Any interest in the patient I certainly think it's it's opens up something uh, different in in the therapeutic encounter and can be therapeutic perhaps.
0: And in your opinion what could be done at a trust organizational level?
2: So uh, I think anyone who is interested can can start to work with their with their own local trust sustainability committee which um, I've, been, I've been doing, it. it's a great experience in terms of management and leadership from the trainee perspective, um, but also to see at the sort of um, grassroots levels in a way how, how one, one trust can try and implement the NHS green plan and devise one's own sort of local green plan. Um, I'm also aware of there being pilots of deprescribing prescribing clinics in my neighbouring North London trusts. And I, I I look to see how that goes for them. I, I have also heard that there, is, there has been a project in Somerset where um, consultant psychiatrists have been trying to work in optimising and deprescribing pa- um, patients' medications, working alongside an expert by experience. And I think the patients have found the sort of the weekly group support alongside the the tapering off their medications very beneficial for supporting them in, in in that. Um, so, so that's something I'd like to work collaboratively with with um, the, the pilots of these clinics, and also sort of with co-production to see if it might be possible to implement um, a possible clinic in my own local trust as a as a as a next step.
0: So, um, it's been great talking to both of you. Um, I want to suggest that one of the paradigm shifts um, involved in the notion that we've got to think about saving the planet, and that becomes a top priority, um, it leads to radical rethinking about the way we do things, because it's this looming imperative. So I'm going to hit you both with some ideas um, to see your reaction, Um, that in a way, I used to work at the National Health Service, but I work in private practice, and one of the reasons people sometimes move into private practice is, first of all, they feel there's a lot of bureaucracy in the NHS, um, unnecessary bureaucracy. There's care quality commission inspections. You still get that, of course, in in private practice as well. But anyway, so so, so the first radical point I'd want to put to you is that the sense of the excessive bureaucracy um, leads to, because basically the basic point is if you're efficient, the more efficient you are and the more you do things that are really necessary to do as opposed to things that are unnecessary the more you're saving the planet so what about that point what are your what's your reaction to that that the the nhs has to think hard about unnecessary bureaucracy do you believe that's an issue either of you um or um uh, is that a a red herring from someone in private practice
1: i think it's a very uh, a good point i think one of the things that um is very encouraging is the rise of quality improvement. And uh, that seems to be a way that uh, that the the, the bureaucratic systems can be cut through, if you like, uh, by teams and individuals who want to improve their practice at at the ground level. Um, And I think um, if you include sustainable uh, quality measures in in that quality improvement, in those quality improvement activities, you can improve the quality of the service you provide, reducing inefficiency and also make it more sustainable. So I think that is a really interesting uh, way that we can move forward, I think.
0: Ali, did you wanna come back on that point?
2: I, I do think that it's a very important point and bureaucracy isn't just for this part, but it makes me think of all areas in the NHS, I guess it has to be a balance, isn't there? I guess the bureaucracy is there to sort of check and um, approve. And I I certainly, I'm not sure if I've highlighted, but there have been various barriers along the way of me trying to uh, work with pharmacy colleagues and get to the medicines optimization group. Um, And and, and I've been trying to work out whether that's to do with interest or lack of interest in what i'm proposing and i i I cannot i cannot quite say whether or not it's to do with bureaucracy but certainly from the audit cycle point of view there is quite a lot and sometimes these things you kind of just need someone to get going with it rather than waiting for the approval sadly
0: OK, I'm going to hit you again, and you must always, both of you, come back with, to me very directly if you think I'm making these, these, these points are unfair or um, not sensible. But another big difference between private practice and the NHS, and, and as someone who used to work at the NHS, again, I observe this happening more and more, it seems to me, now working outside the NHS, is the fragmentation of psychiatry into lots of different teams. So you've got crisis teams, uh, alcohol teams, and so it, it, it feels a little bit the patient is often pulled from pillar to post so the alcohol patient seen by the alcohol team and then when the alcoholism seems to subside they may be seen by another team in private practice almost by definition because of the economics there's more of a tendency to practitioners to try to see many different kinds of people obviously you, you you couldn't you shouldn't be seeing people with some eating disorder where you need to be a specialist eating disorders consultant but most most practitioners in private practice see a wide variety of different things and also They tend to see the patient, the patient can come back to that particular person week after week or take a break and come back and see that person six months later or a year later. And in the NHS, the person is held by a team, but often any one individual practitioner they see has changed or moved on when they come back a few months later. And that means often there's a lack of sense of continuity. So again, come back at me, both of you. Do you think that's an issue? Because I believe that's very inefficient, the fragmentation into teams. What What are your thoughts?
1: I think, um, I think that reminds me of a very interesting um, initiative that's happening around our area. And it comes as part of the community mental health framework, which is a new framework, which is supposed which identifies that problem. And what they're setting up in North Tyneside is a a hub is a local hub where the mental health services, the social care services, uh, the third sector, um, are, are all based in the same uh, the same building, and so when a patient uh, attends, they can get what they want without having to go through these bar- these barriers. Um, and the the and and it's it's so I think what you're saying, Raj, is recognised within the services now, and the, and this is a way to try and tackle that. Um, I think that uh, and and it's it's supposed to make the patient journey much more smooth and reduce barriers, but it will also be sustainable because the whole idea of it is to promote the, the, the patient uh, managing their own uh, symptoms as much as possible using their family and the communities around them. Um, it enables you to to it, it enables them to get their social needs met. At an early stage, preventing them um, becoming mental health needs, and it also, you know, enables them to get their mental health needs treated quickly, you know, preventing it escalating into serious mental health disorders. So, um, I think what you're saying there um, has been recognised, and I think some of these initiatives that are now coming on are very encouraging, both from a quality perspective and also from a sustainability angle. Ali,
0: did you want to come back on any of those points?
2: Well, absolutely, I agree. I mean, um, we've had a, we've gone through a similar tr- transformation in the last year. Um, I think from following from the NHS long long term plan, where you know it used to be services was um, in pathway, say, personality disorder or depression or psychosis, and now we're going back to borough based. So um, I worked in the South team where we cover the South part of the borough and we work with the gps in the south and one of the main aspects of this is becoming more integrated with the gp so we have a weekly meeting where we can discuss shared patients and and or referrals they might have and so certainly this continuity of care is i i think very important and and the structure within this the team i've worked in has enabled this because they have a named um medical clinician who usually takes responsibility for the patient so it would usually respond in the first instance so it reduces the likelihood of this patient needing duty or cat or um, out of hours um, contact so that um, longer term continuity can happen of course as a trainee this has not been completely possible Um, but for the permanent clinicians this um, and for the patients that are under their care, this has allowed them, you know, a longer term um, provision of care. And and I think that allows a a way of getting to know the patient more deeply um, because one of the, I think, one of the most sustainable aspects is that we, we are here to try and help the patient understand themselves because if they're not able to look after themselves, I don't think they really, would be able to think about others and the planet. So that's that's certainly where I think um, our role might be in trying to help the patient understand themselves. Firstly,
0: so we're running out of time a little bit. So one final question. Of course, there's an opportunity for you to uh, to to suggest anything else you wanted to say but didn't get a chance to. You're, you're both very impressive in the passion you bring to this subject that I really knew very little about until I, I began talking to you about the notion of sustainable psychiatry. Um, I do wonder, um, you're both very passionate, enthusiastic and your passions infectious. Do you not feel again, a very provocative and challenging question as is my style that amongst colleagues that the colleagues are a bit overwhelmed by other problems, um, of, of lack of resources and long waiting lists and so on that you find it d- difficult to get your ideas over to colleagues because they're a bit preoccupied with other things, or do you find colleagues are very receptive to what you, you have to say over to both of you?
1: I find my colleagues very receptive, um, and uh, but yes, they are under pressure. Um, I think one of the key messages that I like to get across. So I'm doing a talk with them tomorrow, is uh, is that sustainability is about good psychiatric care, and all doctors want to provide it. All psychiatrists want to pr- want to provide that, and it's um, and and it's also about um, sustainability. Is, is is not an add on. Um, so if it's an extra thing that people have to do, then they will find that an, an onerous addition. But sustainability is part of good psychiatric practice that and a lot of it's already being done. And I think I'd like to emphasize the role of the long term plan that Ali mentioned, long term plan, in fact, it has a lot of very sustainable initiatives in it, uh, particularly for mental health, uh, about prevention, about providing Uh, crisis service throughout all all ages um, and providing, you know, care nearer to where people live. So the long-term plan is a very, you know, sustainable and green plan. And I think um, it comes with with finances as well. So if doctors want to, um, you know, develop the sustainable services in their service, in their area, then looking at the long-term plan is a good place to start. Ali, did you want to say anything to conclude?
2: I think you're absolutely right that um, when resources are scarce and we're under a lot of pressure um, this might not be um, one of the things that we immediately think about but as Dr Harvey has said you know it is not an add-on and I think actually um, if we're able to step back and see the wood for the trees um, good sustainable practice is about trying to reach social justice and that's I think that's part of Uh, obviously part of the biopsychosocial treatments that we we should provide as psychiatrists Um, and so being able to try and to help help patients reduce health inequalities um, is good for for them and the planet.
1: And could I add as well that um, one of the things mental health and psychiatry is very good at is bridging the inpatient community divide and we've worked for decades to try and uh, you know, keep people at home, manage their, uh, their problems you know, using c- crisis teams and home-based treatments. And I think this is something that acute care could learn a-, a lot from us about. So I think if mental health have something to contribute wider sustainability within the NHS, I think it's those sort of things. It's about using public health, encouraging public health me- me- measures, pushing, uh, working upstream to prevent people becoming unwell, reduce the need for health care. Ali and Guy, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you.